Here we are, episode 74 of The Actors Room. My name is Jeff Tarowski, and we continue talking about Quentin Tarantino's cult classic, big hit, Pulp Fiction. This is the second part. Sit back, relax, open up that beverage of your choice. Oh yeah. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody. Just had an ant crawl on me, a big black ant just crawled on me before I started this episode. So I, I'm dealing with that right now. I crushed it because it walked on me. I felt it. I'm like, what the? And it ran away. I got it. I crushed it. I feel kind of bad about that. Although I despise ants with a passion, I just do. Ants and flies. Mm. So it, it getting away. I would still be thinking to myself, the thing is still in here somewhere. It might have friends. I don't know. I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't interrupt this episode of The Actors Room. Once again, my name's Jeff. This is episode 74. Proud of that. We're approaching 75. And here we are. Back. Talking about Pulp Fiction Part 2. Quentin's Say masterpiece haven't seen his newest film yet the wife and i we wanted to see it last night didn't happen these things happen it was kind of a late viewing and although 
back in the day, that didn't matter. When I was a kid, a teenager, when I saw this for the first time, as I'm growing older, it was a showing that started around 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Like, that's just too late for us. Old bags. But anyways, I can't wait to see that one. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's it. Just popped in my head, right? Can't wait to see it. I've heard mixed reviews, um, opinions about it. Some love it, some don't. I think that's a common thing, though, with Quentin. But at this stage in his career, when someone goes out to see his film and they're disappointed, that's not good. I'm hardly ever disappointed with his films. I didn't like Jackie Brown. I thought that was subpar. Some consider that his best work. I don't. I didn't like it. I I thought it was just okay. Most of his stuff I just enjoy thoroughly. And Django Unchained I thought was brilliant. Hateful Eight. I I enjoyed it. It was a great film to me. Looking forward to seeing this in the theater. I hope I don't miss it. I get this strange feeling that whenever I have time to finally go out with the wife to watch this thing, it'll be out of the theater. I want to see it in the theater. There's something about watching it in the theater as opposed to at home. It's just common sense. You want to get the full experience, that big screen. I hope I don't miss it. I thought about seeing it tonight. It just didn't happen. I want to record this podcast talking about Pulp Fiction. And the reason why I wanted to talk about Pulp Fiction is because of this movie, this Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And doing research on... Um, Charles Manson recently too. What a fascinating character that guy was. (laughs) I mean, you want to talk about one of the most influential people on a bad note, of course, Charles Manson. The guy stood at five foot two. I mean, how intimidating is a five foot two guy? And he's shorter than my mom. My mom's five three. She's, you know, she's small. My daughter, Madeline, she's five three. Charles Manson was shorter than them, but one of the scariest motherfuckers ever in the history of the world. Maybe besides Hitler, Mussolini, you know, a couple of other people I can't think of right now. But you know what I'm saying. Charles Manson was just crazy. And diving into that whole story for Quentin, I'm sure was a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know how much screen time that character has, but from the looks at, at it, um, it looks like he's a part of the film to me. I don't know. I've seen previews of the movie. I could be completely wrong about this. I haven't seen the movie yet. Get back to me on this. I don't know. Looking forward to it, of course. And here we go, continuing talking about Pulp Fiction in the second part of this series. I hope you enjoyed the first one. We touched on a little bit of the casting process and that was fun. And in this episode, we'll get more into behind-the-scenes stuff, maybe a little bit more casting stuff, and also what is in that goddamn briefcase. Did some research on that. I have my opinion, and I'm sure you do as well. So let's get right to it. Here we go. This film, quite simply, is entertaining. That's what Quentin does. That's what he does best. He took everything he learned about movies he watched in the past, 
his imagination. And then he gave that to us. The guy has a great mind. He does. And although there are people out there that may not appreciate his work, thinking it's a little too um, out there, yes. Uh, Kabuki performances, maybe. Outlandish. Too weird. Too forward. You have to remember this. He entertains you. In a comment made by Gary Oldman back in the day, when Pulp Fiction was coming up, big hit, Reservoir Dogs, getting a lot of buzz, and Quentin as well, Gary Oldman remarked how he didn't despise those kind of movies. He made a slight remark, an insult, about, oh, there's people out there that believe that Cinema started with Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs in a whole shoot 'em up, you know, scene or attitude to movies is just not real life. And how movies like, I think to me, Mystic River comes to mind. Okay, these movies are just, they're gritty, they're real. They have more to say than these gangster movies where you're just shooting each other up and it's all just. You know, fun. Fun blood. (laughs) Spurting everywhere. It's entertainment. And although Gary Oldman took a little shot at Quentin. And I find this interesting. Because Gary Oldman was in True Romance. Written by Tarantino. (laughs) I'm sure Gary knew that. And Gary has no problem at all. Expressing what he feels. And that's fine. I mean, hey, that's how he feels. And in a way, he's right. Cinema didn't start with Tarantino, but Quentin makes movies fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. Although Gary Oldman prefers to watch, say, Mystic River over Pulp Fiction, he's not the only one. But me, I enjoy both equally. I take what Quentin does and I go, that's amazing. He's taken what he's seen in the past and made it his own. Sure, all of these themes that are in Pulp Fiction have been done before. But Quentin is doing it in his way. On his time. And making it specific. And I talked about that earlier. How specific Quentin is. And if you watch this movie, notice how Quentin uses the color orange. The next time you watch Pulp Fiction, a lot of orange in the scenes of Pulp Fiction. Yellow as well. Orange and yellow. Yellow coffee pots. Yellow tea kettles. Just an orange-yellow theme in lighting. Things kind of having that rustic look. Not as, well... I always say The Godfather kind of had a rustic look to it. And Francis Ford Coppola did it that way. That was on purpose. And it works for the film. Quentin did the same thing with Pulp Fiction. If you really look at it. He made such specific choices. And it goes to show you just how a director. 
places in, in every frame, something interesting. And a viewer of what I call masterpiece filmmaking, you can get something out of that by sitting back and noticing things that are interesting. And you go, I've, I've noticed that he likes to use that orange and yellow color in Pulp Fiction. Take notice of it next time. It's there. Here is a cute little example right here. This is good stuff. Here's an example of how specific and interesting Tarantino gets in his films. Listen to this fucking shit. Eric Stoltz in the movie, right? He plays Lance. Which was a role that Quentin played around with. Uh, He wanted to play that part, Lance. He ultimately decided on Jimmy later in the movie with the Bonnie situation. But he played with the idea of doing the Lance role. Okay, Eric Stoltz got the part. In that scene, a few scenes in Lance's house. Quentin Tarantino placed this into the movie. Board games. And the board games that you can see in the movie. In Lance's house. The Game of Life. In operation. I forgot I had a look at my paper to say that. So it was the game of life in operation. Stacked on top of each other in the scene. You can see it. It's there. Now this is the key. Why do I mention that? Who cares, right? He put that in there. Maybe the they were just laying around. Okay. Uh, rumor has it that Tarantino loves board games. Me too. Not like I used to, but... I love board games. Operation, the game of life was also (laughs) in back to the future that Eric Stoltz was a part of for about two months and got fired. Tarantino placed that in there. There's a scene in back to the future that has the game boards operation in the game of life stacked just like in Pulp Fiction. I wonder if Eric Stoltz knows that. Quentin made a little joke there. That's how specific he is. That was not a mistake. No fucking way. You can't tell me. That was a coincidence. No way, man. Quentin remembers everything. I think he watches movies every waking moment. I do. He's one of those guys. I saw an interview today. uh, For the first time. Joe Rogan is a great interviewer of his show. I love his show. I will binge on it from time to time. He interviewed Mike Tyson a few years ago. And Mike Tyson remarked how into boxing he was when he first started. He ate, slept, bled, thought, read, watched boxing. Every breathing moment. That's what made him great. He lived it. That's what Quentin does. He lives for film. That's no coincidence. And I love little tidbits like that. Goes to show you how dedicated and how much fun he puts into his movies. Eric Stoltz, right? Loved his character as Lance. Nailed it. And I've said before, I really enjoy Eric Stoltz as an actor. I think he gets a little too into it. I think he pisses people off. Because of his method 
And that's what works for him. That's fine. And he nails this role as Lance. He's fun to watch, isn't he? He just is, man. And the rumor out there is that Quentin wanted Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love to play Lance and his wife. This is not true. Did some research on this. Didn't happen. Courtney Love is the one that started the rumor. Go figure. And what's weird is, they would have been perfect. (laughs) Courtney Love maybe should get into casting. She's right. As much as I love Eric Stoltz as Lance, (laughs) Kurt, that would have been fantastic. And it just, that was them, man. I mean, yeah, Lance, I don't think is a rock star. He's a drug dealer. (laughs) Okay. But it almost looked like Lance kind of copied Cobain. It could be a coincidence that they're similar. (laughs) But interesting. Um, Quentin never even met Cobain. Never met him. That doesn't mean that he didn't want him for the role. But Quentin denies it. Says it never crossed his mind. And if Eric Stoltz sort of took Kurt Cobain in his image and sort of played it into his character, okay. But Cobain was... He was never, ever approached by Quentin to take the role. So, sorry, Courtney. Nice try. <laughs> Trying to stir up, you know, interest and stuff like that. And uh, I would have loved it. I would have loved to have seen Kurt and Courtney play that role. I thought, what a choice that would be. Yeah. But no. All right. Let's talk about Mr. Bruce Willis is Butch. The Boxer. I am not the biggest Bruce Willis fan. He's fine. He's fine. I enjoyed watching him. Oh, God. My parents absolutely adored the sitcom that he did with Sybil Shepard. Moonlighting? That's it. My parents adored that show. It started at 9 o'clock. And we were in bed like... That's who we knew we had to go to bed because moonlighting would be on. And I'd be laying in bed and my parents would be cracking up, laughing. I couldn't fall asleep till 10. <clears throat> you know, it was, they enjoyed the show. Bruce Willis was on that show. I enjoyed him in Blind Date with Kim Basinger. Well done. That's a comedy. And he's done other films that I do enjoy. Uh, I have to confess, bad on me, I've never seen Die Hard. What is wrong with me? And I always say, this is the year I'm going to watch Die Hard. And I hear it's a Christmas movie. Really? Okay. There's a Christmas tree in the background. I don't know. Die Hard. Going to have to watch it. I hear it's great. Bruce Willis. He's okay. As an actor, he's fine. He looks like the guy next door. Bruce Willis looks like a, a science teacher, a gym teacher, maybe. Or a car salesman, maybe. Accountant. For me, he doesn't really look like an actor, but that works for him too because there aren't many actors that look like Bruce Willis, right? He is completely in a league of his own as far as looks go. Very normal looking guy, um, I think. Nothing to brag about, really. You know, uh, 12 Monkeys was good. Fine. In this film, he did okay. It uh, was originally supposed to go to Matt Dillon. 
Uh, Quinton wanted the boxer to be an up-and-comer boxer. Matt Dillon, he just couldn't convince Matt Dillon to do it. Couldn't get him. Hey, Maddie, it's a great role, man. Take it. Matt's like, eh, <laughs> I'd rather do something else, man. Sorry. That's okay. Mickey Rourke was also considered. Mickey Rourke. I was on a kick watching his stuff the past couple of weeks. There was a film. Well, I don't want to get into Mickey Rourke. He deserves his own show. He really does. I can go on for days about Mickey Rourke. And I will. <laughs> That's a, that is a guarantee, folks. Rourke is going to get special attention. Because he deserves it. Big fucking time. I watched like four of his films last week. Which you get. I get on watching Mickey. I can't stop. I can't stop. Um, he was considered for Butch. He turned it down. He wanted to concentrate on his own boxing career. Why couldn't he do this movie first? Then go and box. He wanted to be a boxer. And from what I heard, Mickey Rourke is an excellent boxer or was. Um, like I said, we will get into him in the future. Dedicating... I'm not talking about several episodes. He'll get probably at least two. At least. A lot to talk about with that guy. Very interesting fellow. For sure. Getting back on Bruce Willis. I hear he's quite the character. I'm not saying he's a dick. Because I don't know Bruce Willis. But from what I've heard. He's kind of difficult. Some actors are. Um, Hard to work with. High maintenance, maybe? Bruce? Bruce, are you high maintenance? Yeah. Yeah, he is. And as Butch, he did fine. His part where he screws over Marcellus Wallace, (laughs) he doesn't ditch on the fight. Okay? And for that, he is in trouble. He's running now. He's running. He's got his cute little girlfriend with him, the French chick. She's cute. And uh, although her accent is a little annoying, that character was fine. And that's what I have to say about that part of the movie. My least favorite was that section, although there's only three sections. The Bruce Willis one, the only part I liked about it was the Christopher Walken part. Yes, baby. Chris Walken in Pulp Fiction. What a cameo. What a monologue. Great monologue, Quentin. Well-written, well-performed by Mr. Walken. He was just being walking, wasn't he? He walked in the room. (laughs) Walking. He's walking in the room. He does his scene, and he leaves. I guess he didn't even meet anybody else on set. Like, I think they filmed filmed him last, I think. Or first. That I can't remember. It was either he came in first, they shot his scene, and he left. I think it took like a day. It it was like a day of work. And of course, the guy is just, what a brilliant actor Christopher Walken is. Haven't done him yet either in the actor's room. That should be done as well. Weird guy. But what an actor. And in that monologue, I guess there was a point where he forgot his lines Watch that monologue closely, folks. There's a pause in there. 
And that pause happened for a reason. It wasn't an acting choice. He forgot his lines. But it worked. Quentin thought it looked good and kept it in the movie. Walken stops his dialogue, thinks for a moment, remembers his line, and continues. He didn't stop. They tell you don't stop. You forget your line. Keep going. Especially when you're on stage. <laughs> Those of you doing plays, you forget your line. You can't yell cut. Sorry, uh, we're going to have to yell cut here. You know, everybody hold on. Take a bathroom break. We'll be back in five minutes. I got to memorize my lines better. But Christopher Walken nails the monologue. What a sensation he is as an actor. And through time, decided to broaden his horizons in the acting world, doing comedies, doing them well. But a strange guy, great dancer too. He tap dances. But getting off of Pulp Fiction there, <laughs> getting back on track, wanted to mention that monologue. It's important because if you think about it, that should be the beginning of the film. That's the starting point, sort of. And this is a cute little moment too in the film. Um, but getting back to the whole sequences of the time sequence, actually, is that at the end of the film, you hear Bruce Willis and his girlfriend get on Zed's chopper. It's not a motorcycle. It's a chopper. <laughs> and Bruce makes it very clear that it's a chopper. Butch, the last sound you hear in the movie is the chopper riding off in the distance. The engine revving. And the first thing you hear in Pulp Fiction is the chopper revving down the street. Pay close attention to the very first scene in Pulp Fiction before Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer start their dialogue. You will hear a motorcycle going off in the distance. I just think that's a fun fact that Quentin put that in there. And of course he put it on purpose. Um, The time sequence mix-up that Quentin did in this movie. It's all over the place. I would love to see it in actual sequence from beginning to end, how things really happen. Um, I think that would be so much fun to do. And I'm sure you could do it on your own, splicing it and putting all the scenes in the chronological order order that it goes in. Uh, And I couldn't talk just then. Sorry about that. I don't like doing that. I don't like messing up. Just don't. It upsets me. And if you can hear in the tone of my voice, there's my anger issue coming out again. Hey, oh, <laughs> sorry about that. Right. You can hear that undertone in my voice. Like I get snotty. I don't mean to just, you know, it happens. But I thought I'd put that little bit of tidbit information at, at the end with the motorcycle in the beginning there's a motorcycle and how fun it would be to actually see the movie from beginning to end with the time sequences matching up and how they should go chronologically. Um, what's that other movie that was all over the place? It was a sensation. Memento. Oh, that was like my favorite movie for like a few years. I couldn't get enough of that movie. Memento. And Quentin was sort of just... I don't know. One of the first to do it, I think. Uh, If not one of the first, to have it all jumbled up like that. Um, I know that Kubrick had a film 
that he did, I think in the 50s, that was jumbled up too. So Quentin wasn't the first, fuck me. But he was one of very few that played with that idea. And how interesting it is to do that. It keeps you on your toes. Um, Yeah, you're a little confused. But it makes you want to see it again. And again and again. That's the beauty of Tarantino in his work. He doesn't do it all the time in his films. But he will from time to time. In, In the beginning of his career, I think he wanted to stick out. That was intentional. And now that his movies are more popular and he's more popular... He's able to do films maybe the way he wants to do them for real. And that's what we get today. Not all of his movies are out of sequence. So, getting back to the casting process, I wanted to mention the role that Uma Thurman got as Mia Wallace. Here are some of the actresses that Quentin sort of considered. Isabella Rossellini, okay, Meg Ryan, No, although I was very intrigued when I watched Hurley Burley, a movie called Hurley Burley. Meg Ryan plays a character she normally doesn't play. And I might be typecasting Meg Ryan. She's done so much fluff. She has. Sleepless in Seattle, all the whatever. She's okay actress. I like Meg Ryan. She's cute. She's fun. She's bubbly. Right? It's good. A fun actress. But as Mia Wallace, I don't know. She might have done a great job. If you haven't seen Meg Ryan play a role where she's all strung out, okay, or just not her regular role, watch Hurley Burley. Maybe she would have pulled it off, Meg Ryan. Maybe I underestimate her. Who else was considered? Daryl Hannah. Of course, Daryl Hannah. But Jeff, she don't like drugs. In Wall Street, she played like this snobby, materialistic character. She didn't like it. So would she have liked to play Mia Wallace? She probably wouldn't have. I'm picking on Daryl. Sorry, Daryl. And why a boy's first name? Joan Cusack. That could have been interesting. I like her a lot. And Michelle Pfeiffer. Would have done fantastic. And Quentin, out of all those actresses, preferred Pfeiffer. And maybe we should talk about Uma for a bit. She is an above-average actress, for sure. Um, She does a fantastic job as Mia Wallace. Uh, Personally, I don't think I could have seen anybody else playing that role, even Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, although Quentin may have wanted Pfeiffer, ultimately, I think Uma Thurman was perfect for the role. She did a great job. And I've always loved her work. And uh, she and Ethan Hawke had been together for a long time. Uh, they worked together. They became an item. And Uma Thurman, as an actress, is good. She is. Uh, Dare I say she gives one of the best performances acting wise in the movie. As great as Sam Jackson is. And John Travolta, right? They were fantastic. Travolta got nominated for supporting Oscar. uh, Actor Oscar. He was fantastic. 
But are we missing out on Uma Thurman's contribution to this film? Take notice of her acting. She nails it. Every scene, every emotion, every moment. And by God, the scene where she sniffs the heroin. And here we go, folks. Um, I've heard that sniffing heroin, it can, it can be done, I guess. Jeez. Hardcore, man. Hardcore. Um, but I guess this was special heroin that Travolta was buying from Lance. Or, sorry, we'll use their names. Vince Vega was buying from Lance this primo heroin. And those of you who are well-versed in drugs... Know that when you buy heroin, you buy it in balloons. You don't buy them in baggies. And if you notice in the film, Lance says to Vince, he ran out of balloons. Is it okay if I put it in a baggie? Okay. And uh, Vince says, that's fine. Whatever. So when Mia has Vincent's jacket on, it must have been cold that night. And she takes Vince's coat, puts it on outside. And when they come into the house, she still has it on. Sits down as Vincent is in the bathroom, taking a piss. She reaches in the pocket, finds a baggie, not a balloon. She would have never sniffed it if it was in a balloon. Because she would know that's heroin. Because it was in a baggie, she felt it was coke. And because this is like special primo heroin, primo shit, when she sniffed it, bad. Obviously bad. And you get the scene, very emotional, hectic scene in the movie. He, uh, Vince is freaking out and deservedly so. Heaven forbid this lady dies in his care. He was just supposed to show her a good time. And played with the idea of sleeping with her. (laughs) Great scene in the movie. Probably Travolta's best improv. Because I'm sure there was improv. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. With Quentin, he writes so well. There probably isn't much improv. But it Travolta did such a great job acting. That it felt improv to me. When he's in the bathroom. Going over like. You drink your drink and you leave. Right? You go home. You jerk off and you leave. (laughs) That's it. The way he says, you go home, you jerk off, and that's it. (laughs) Very natural to me. A great moment in the film. And he's freaking out. He's got to bring Mia to Lance. Lance will know what to do. Pick up, Lance. Pick it up. Lance is uh, stoned, I'm sure. Smoking a cigarette while eating one of his favorite Breakfast cereals. Uh, Fruit. Damn it. I know this. And this is important too. Hold on. Fruit Brute. Never heard of it, folks. I guess uh, it was a cereal back then in the 90s, 80s and 90s. Fruit Brute. Well, Mr. Lance, the drug dealer, is eating Fruit Brute cereal. And it's uh, displayed there, the little cereal box. Fruit Brute. I don't know, is it by post? Not sure. It was kind of like the whole Count Chocula series, I think. And in Reservoir Dogs, 
Tim Roth's character had Fruit Brute in the background in his apartment. Another little thing that Quentin likes to put in his movies. Lance is chowing down in the middle of the night. It was at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Phone's ringing. It's Vince. He needs to come by. Vince just crashes into his house with the car. Big scene. Uh, Lance's wife's freaking out. What's going on? And it's Patricia Arquette. I'm sorry. Check that. Rosanna Arquette plays Lance's wife. And she's good. Uh, It was supposed to go to Pam Greer. And Pam Greer wanted the role. Quentin decided against it. Feeling that he respected Pam Greer so much. He didn't want her to play this role of Lance's wife. Because Lance kind of pushes her around. He didn't like that. He said, Pam, I can't do that to you. I'm going to give the role to somebody else. Like Rosanna Arquette. I guess he felt Rosanna could be pushed around. No problem. Come on, Quentin. That was a little bit of a jab to Rosanna Arquette. <laughs> All right, getting back to that scene, uh, a hard scene to watch for some people. I, I didn't think that was that bad. I thought it was very good, well done scene. And when Travolta plunges it into her heart, it was filmed backwards. Uh, the shot was already in Mia, and Travolta pulled it out. So that's a little bit of movie magic. When you see John plunging into her chest, it's actually. In reverse. And before I go any further. Into this episode. I want to mention something that's important to me. And uh, another reason why I. Really like Quentin. Is he likes to place in. Little tidbits. About Marlon Brando. He considers Brando. To be brilliant. And he is. And here's an example. He actually referenced Brando in Reservoir Dogs. I'm not going to tell you where, but he actually has in the dialogue of one of his characters mentioned Marlon Brando by name. And in Pulp Fiction, when Vincent Vega confronts Bruce Willis's character Butch in the bar, he's not pleased with Butch. He calls him Palooka? Right? Am I right? Palooka, okay? <laughs> and that's a reference to uh, Terry Malloy, uh, played by Brando in On the Waterfront. Brando plays a boxer, and he threw a fight in the movie. So, that's a reference to Brando's character in On the Waterfront. One of Brando's best performances. So, Quentin likes to throw in Brando tidbits. In his films. Not all of them of course. But from time to time. He will drop that. He loved Brando's acting. And so did I. Brando was the best actor. In the history of the world. Uh, This is not debatable folks. Uh, That's not an opinion. (laughs) It's not. No. 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 Quentin knew he was great. And although. He may not have felt that he was the greatest actor. He might. It is not an opinion. (laughs) He's the best. He might not have done the best movies, right? They all clunk every now and then. Uh, 
Go watch Brando and prove me wrong. Who's better than Brando? Who? Bring it on. <laughs> I know, right? Like, a, a fight me. Yeah. Ah. All right. What's up next here? What do I want to talk about? We're going we're gonna to take a moment here. Oh, yeah. This is good. This is good. Daniel Day-Lewis was... Mm, I don't know if he was considered... Maybe for Vincent Vega, but he wanted to play it. Daniel Day-Lewis wanted to play Vincent Vega. Quentin said no. <laughs> Daniel got denied. That is rare, folks. Because Daniel Day-Lewis, all right, he's, he's up there with Brando, folks. Yeah, he's that good too. Like, there's an elite platform, right? Like, at the Olympics, you got, like, the three, you know? Got the gold, silver, bronze. Well, Brando's up there with the gold, okay? (laughs) Daniel Day might be right below him there. And the silver, Quinted said, nah, I'm going to take the guy who did Look Who's Talking. I love John Travolta. And by the way, I watched Blowout. The film that Twin- Twinton, that Quentin loves John Travolta's performance. I watched it a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was great. What an underrated movie, Blowout, by Brian De Palma with John Travolta. See it. I think it was on, I think it was on like, there's a, an application or whatever called Tubi. T-U-B-I. It's got commercials in it. But watch Blowout, and I was blown away. Hey. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. All right. Whew. Folks, it was, uh, it's been a few weeks. I wanted to get this one out last week. I did. So I'm sorry for those of you who wanted to look up on Monday and see the second part. It didn't happen. Shit comes up. Shit comes up. I had jury duty. I was scared, folks, about jury duty. I didn't want to get on a case that lasted weeks. It's possible. It happens. I went in on a Wednesday, sat there all day, eight hours, reading, whatever. And then I came back on Thursday, and by 1.30, they sent me home. I'm like, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Got lucky. But it's been, yeah, I was so nervous about that. That was the first time I ever did jury duty, so I was nervous about it. Uh, You got to go downtown. I hate going downtown. I used to work downtown for like 10 years. And I hated every day going to drive downtown. Not for me. I don't like driving down there. I hate the highway. I hate the traffic. Then you got to find a place to park. I parked at this little airport downtown. And it was the cheapest place around. Had to walk a bit. And I was nervous about getting there on time. Where to go. I didn't want to be late. I hardly slept that night. I got anxiety, folks. Obviously. And, like, I was just nervous about being there. I didn't... I'm very uh, nervous when I don't know what to expect. It bothers me. 
but it all worked out fine. So uh, a little, hmm. And I could tell my voice is going, so we're going to try to wrap this up. In the actor's room about Pulp Fiction, one of my favorite films. And I'm going to see what else is on my list. Oh, oh yeah, I mentioned this too, why not? Uh, Butch's uh, opponent in the ring is called Wilson. And that was Brando's character in On the Waterfront. So obviously, that's not a coincidence. The brilliance of Tarantino. Mentioning Brando. Yeah. I got a heart on for the guy. I do. I do. He was the best. And the reason why I started this show was because of Brando. It was. So, if you hear me mention Brando and you go, why are you mentioning him again? It's because he's a central theme in my show. And mentioning him should be in every show I do. And how magnificent he was. And the progressions that he took coming up in the 40s in New York City. Roaming the streets like he did in the 40s. Studying with uh, um, Stella Adler at the School of New Research. Okay, this That school was just a stepping stone for Brando. He did go to the actor's studio and study with Strasbourg, sort of. Okay, He was already seasoned by then. And Brando says he went to the studio... To get laid. That's a fact. Okay. It's like sending a tiger to jungle school. The dude already had it. He was just going to pick up chicks. He would he would fuck like three women a day. He was a, a, a sex addict. Brando. I mean, I'm surprised his dick was still attached to his body back then. He had every single STD you can imagine. And there's a story, I'll bring it up, because I didn't bring it up in my three-part Brando series I did, like, two years ago. And I I believe this story. One of his buddies, Carlo Fiore, back in the day in New York City, they studied acting together at the New School, back in the 40s. And Carlo would write a book about Brando. Later on, when he was broke, this guy was a heroin addict. He just needed, you know, to make some money. So he wrote a book about his buddy. Hey, you knew Brando. You could make, you know, some money. Write a book about your uh, experiences with him. Well, one of the experiences that he had with Brando. Way back in the day. When they were, God, early 20s. Brando got crabs. (laughs) Which I find interesting. I mean, reading about Brando. And reading that he had crabs. I'm thinking, I don't really know that much about that. So I looked it up and what it consists of and everything. It's pretty much what you think. It's little creatures that are living in that area. It's an STD, crabs. They're actually little, like in my head, like little bugs, little spiders. (laughs) Safe sex, people. Safe. Okay? Safe. Be safe. Brando wasn't safe, okay? He got yucky things. Well, the story is, he got crabs, right? Happens. Whatever. When you're screwing around like he did, okay? It was bound to happen. He got it. His friend said one night he caught Brando. (laughs) Trying to transfer over these creatures on him 
to his friend. <laughs> now, they would do practical jokes with one another. That one's sick. That one is pretty sick. <laughs> what an asshole. I got to do, I think I got to do more shows just about Brando. He is the most fascinating person I've ever read up on. Ever. Because <laughs> I read biographies. He blows everybody out of the water. The things that he did, he experienced, uh, the people he knew. It goes deep with Brando. It does. And some of the things that he did in his life, the people he knew, the things he did. <laughs> okay. I mean, he lived to 80. That's a miracle. A miracle. He would have uh, locksmith people come in. They would keep his refrigerator locked. He had a lock and his refrigerator because he was addicted to food. He would raid his refrigerator every night. He would come downstairs and just raid it, empty it. <laughs> so he had a lock put on there. Brando did. So he wouldn't go in the refrigerator. But eventually called up a locksmith to break it open. He would have delivery boys throw uh, just quarter pounder after quarter pounder over his Mulholland Drive fence. <laughs> uh, folks, I could go on for days about Brando. He would inhale, and I'm not, I'm not kidding, inhale hot dogs. Two at a time. Ah! <laughs> look at look at how big he got. He was a big guy. And then when you see him uh, in the 40s when he first started out, I mean, he was an Adonis. The guy was just a good looking guy. And he just was addicted to food. Boy, did I get off track. But like I said, the reason why I started this show was to talk about Brando. And if I feel it necessary... And I haven't gone off on Brando in a long time. It was long overdue, folks. Learning about Brando. And maybe from now on, that's what I'm going to do. Fucking brilliant. From now on, I will put in... <laughs> instead of doing another like two-parter on Brando... Uh, from here on out, in every show... We're going to put some tidbit info about Brando. There's a lot. And it'll continue on until I don't have anything else to say about Brando. He could have little tidbits of information in the next hundred shows. At least. That was just a little taste, folks. There's so much more to that guy. Fascinating character. Just fascinating. And Quentin Tarantino was fascinated with Brando as well. All right. Here we go. What is in that goddamn briefcase? What do you think? It's opened up a few times in the movie. And when it's opened up, that briefcase, there's a gold, orangey gold, uh, like light coming out, beaming, you know? No, not beaming. I take that back. But there's a light. What's in there? Love your opinions on this. And there are theories. Some think it's Marcellus Wallace's soul. And this is what I believed 
for a long time. I heard that. I said, it makes sense. And they say that the devil will take your soul through your neck. And if you notice Marcellus Wallace, the first time you see him, you see the back of his head and he's got a big fat band-aid right on his neck, signifying that the devil took his soul through his neck. I guess that's false. People read into something a little too much. It's just that that's, that's not true, I guess. But I thought that was pretty brilliant though. That it could be his soul. Like he sold it to the devil. He found a way to get it back. Okay. And that's why nobody wants to give it up. It's so beautiful. Travolta opens up the case. Goes. He's like mesmerized by it. Jules asks him. You know. Do we have it? Are we happy? And Jules continues to look at it. No I'm sorry. Vince. Continues to look at it. He doesn't even hear Jules at all. And Jules again says, are we happy? And Vince finally looks up. Oh, we're happy. What is in there? (laughs) And then at the end of the movie, we see it again near the end when Tim Roth, who plays Pumpkin, sees it. He opens up the case. And he's mesmerized. It's something very beautiful. And I don't buy that it's gold It's boring. Plus the case would be really heavy. It doesn't look like they struggle with it. So not gold. I don't buy it. And gold would never shine like that or glow. Okay. Um, But what is it? Was it just gold coins? Was it some kind of gold? And Quentin played around with the whole golden feel in the movie. Like I mentioned earlier. Gold, orange, yellow. What's really in there. In all reality. Okay, was an orange light. That's what's really in there. <laughs> but what in, in the movie world, in Tarantino's world, when he wrote that script, what's in there? Because Quentin has said, it's whatever you want it to be. What a fucking cop out. But that's brilliant. <laughs> fucking asshole. He's not going to tell you what's in there. He wants you To put whatever you want it to be in there. So, it's really an orange light. But what is it to you? For me, I like the soul thing. I like it. I for me it makes sense when and I heard that it could be gold, it could be this, that. Gold's boring to me. No one would look at gold like that. Okay? They would look at the gold and go, oh wow, gold, great. That's great. They wouldn't stare at it. Like, it's something else. It's something really profound. And the whole. It's Marcellus Wallace's soul. Makes sense to me. It's interesting. It's different. And thought provoking. Right? So for me. That's what it is. Hey leave comments. What do you think it is? You, you think it's something boring? Great. I want to take you to the next level. All right. So before we end this episode of The Actors Room, episode 74, wrapping it up, we got to talk about the most disturbing scene possibly that I have seen in a long time. There I go again, seeing that scene. I hope I never say it again. 
Anyway, what was a scene that made me, at the age of 18, get the fuck out of my seat and walk right out the door? <laughs> I wa- the only time I ever was so disgusted in a film wh- while watching it, I got up and left. Walked outside. <laughs> what was the scene? What do you think? <laughs> you think about that movie, what... It, what scene would be oh my god what especially if you've never seen anything like that in a movie before okay is when marcellus wallace and bruce willis character butch get trapped in that uh it's a what'd you call like a trade store um i don't know it had a little bit of everything okay a market some sort of market i guess uh, by Zed and uh, his buddy, the the pervs. What makes Quentin write a scene like that? Um, the uh, the there aren't many scenes like that in movie history. <laughs> okay, I've seen a lot of movies, and uh, there aren't many scenes like that. And when I saw that at the age of 18, I, uh, I was taken aback by it. I was offended. Um, I was. And now that I've, of course, seen the film, you know, 20 more times since then, about that. Of course, it doesn't affect me like it did the first time. The first time, I was really affected. And because of that scene, I put a negative mark on that movie, even though it was well acted, um, there was something, it was just for me, uh, any rape scene is disturbing. Okay. Uh, there's a, a rape scene in a Jodie Foster movie. Um, I forget the name of it. Fuck me. Um, but you may know what I'm talking about. Uh, Jodie Foster's character gets, uh, raped, brutally raped and I'll never forget that. It was so disturbing. So any rape scene gets to me in, to anybody, I'm sure, okay? Uh, this one really did. Uh, the Pulp Fiction one, uh, the first time. Holy shit. And, and the, the choice of Butch's character of... Because Butch is a piece of shit. He is. Um, he is. Uh, but he is doing the right thing. Uh, not leaving, but saving Marcellus from becoming the next gimp. Um... The guy that was in the box that they bring out. I mean, this this whole scene, I know this shit goes on, folks. I know it does. It does. Shit like this goes on. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, Butch, thank you. He does the right thing. No matter what's going on between him and Marsalis, how fucked up that is, okay, you can't leave that situation. What if that was you, man? When they did any, meeny, miny, mo? What if they picked your ass? Okay? Think about that. So he did the right thing, of course. Even if Marcellus Wallace is one of the biggest pieces of shit. Okay? You go back. You save him. Butch does. And that's a cute little moment where he, you know, he updates with his weapons. You know, first it's a hammer. Then like a chainsaw. And then... Eventually, of course, the sword 
really good choice there for Quentin in writing. And Butch does take his time going downstairs. If you notice, he did. <laughs> he took his time choosing a weapon as well. And marvelous that he saves Marsalis from becoming the next gimp. And the actor that plays the gimp is the true life husband of Julia Sweeney, who's in the movie at the end in the junkyard with Harvey Keitel. Little tidbit thrown in there. So disturbing that scene, but uh, it, it ends happily. Okay, Butch comes back, he slices up the one guy, and Wallace will just put through, will put that guy through a, a large amount of pain. And he should. Any rapist should. This film, like, mm, it affects you. So, props to Mr. Quentin Tarantino. In Pulp Fiction, 1994. Wrote it, directed it. Was uh, in it as an actor. I said that last episode. And how great of an actor Quentin is. I'm being sarcastic. He's serviceable. But props to Quentin for being one of the best directors and writers of his generation. Thank you once again for listening to the Actors Room. My name's Jeff. Episode 40... Oh, 40. 74. Getting up to 75. Done. All right. Hope everybody out there has a good day. Trying to think. uh, I have been just watching new stuff. Stuff that I haven't seen recently. And it's great. I watched for the first time last night. The Pianist. Oh. Found it hard to sleep last night. I thought that was more touching than Schindler's List. I might be in the minority. Adrian Brody, boy, did he go through it. Well done, sir. He won the Academy Award for that performance in The Pianist. Very powerful film. And hopefully we'll talk about it in the future in the actor's room, diving into great performances and films. And one of them, of course, was Pulp Fiction. And it was great to talk about it. It was. Have a great night. Have a good day. See that movie. Tonight, we're going to continue. My wife and I, The Handmaid's Tale. I think it's wrapping up, man. I think this is episode 13 in the third season. What a show that is. If you're not familiar, it's uh, quite a show. The Handmaid's Tale. Talk about disturbing as well. But well acted. The story, spot on. Writing is good. Uh, so we're going to watch that tonight. I, I hope there's a show that you watch. You, know, you watch with your significant other. Um, or maybe just yourself that you enjoy watching. There's so much out there. And you know, I was thinking to myself, and I said this to my wife. We were talking about actors, acting, and how small of a place Hollywood really is. Um, and it is. I've said that before. And how roles are just recycled. Films sometimes are too. And how everybody in Hollywood like knows each other for the most part. 
and how they all work together eventually, for the most part. And when I was in acting school in 1997, my buddy, Mr. Doug White, <laughs> my acting classmate, would walk around the halls at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and tell all the other students that only 4% of actors make money in the business, right? And he'd walk around the halls at the academy with four fingers up in the hall and go 4%, 4%, 4%. That might be a fact back then in 97 when we were coming up that only 4% of actors work. What a sad, sad reality. He was trying to psych out everybody else because he wanted to be ahead of everyone else and intimidate people that there's a 4% chance you're going to get work. Deal with it. He was hoping his percentage would go up maybe to five (laughs) by telling, you know, our classmate, John, that he had a 4% chance and maybe having that knowledge after school, he would just become uh, an accountant. But nowadays with Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, what else is there? Uh, there's others. All of these shows, these actors have more opportunity to get roles. Because there's more work. When you think back in the 80s and 90s, they had cable, yes. But not the shows that they have today. HBO had a few shows in the evening for adults. Okay, Remember Dream On? I love that show. But... HBO, Cinemax, they had movies. They didn't have shows, really. Think of all the shows now. It's great to be an actor in this day and age, man. Coming out, God bless you, get a show. Act your ass off. God bless you. Any actors listening, there's hope. And there is for actors. This is a great time to be an actor. A writer. okay, A producer, a director. Go out. Make your mark, but do it with caution. Hollywood's a dark place. Be smart. Be careful. Don't trust anyone. Trust yourself and your ability and your talent. Mold it, craft it, believe in you. And if you can find anybody you can rely on, depend on, and trust, great. But just remember this, that there's a pretty damn good chance they would step right over you to get a roll. God bless you. Have a good one.
Thank you.